typically wouldn't read from multiple different versions, but it seems to me that the Living Bible could give me a little assistance in Proverbs chapter 9. I have 10 verses. that bear great weight and worth. Verse 1 from the Living Bible. Wisdom has built a palace supported on seven pillars. The King James would say she has hewn out or carved out to construct. Verse 2. And has prepared a great banquet and mixed the wines and sent her maidens inviting all to come. She calls from the busiest intersections in the city, and she says, Come, you simple ones without good judgment. Surely no one here thinks she's talking to you. Come to wisdom's banquet and drink the wines that I have mixed. Leave behind your foolishness and begin to live, which of course implies that there's no living if it's done in foolishness. Learn how to be wise. And now Solomon writes from his perched point of collective thought and wisdom, if you rebuke a mocker, you only get a smart retort. Yes, He'll snarl at you. So don't bother with him. He'll only hate you for trying to help him. But a wise man, when rebuked, will love you all the more. Teach a wise man and he'll be wiser. Teach a good man, he will learn. For the reverence and fear of God are basic to all wisdom. Knowing God will result in every other kind of understanding. If you rebuke a fool, he'll hate you. If you rebuke a wise man, he'll love you. I preach today, Wintour's memo, I'll help you with it. Now, Father, we need your help today to bring understanding to the people that you've gathered here today. Let the body of Jesus Christ be set on course. I pray for every person, man and woman, that is in this room and those who may not be able to be here, that you would speak to each of us individually through your already anointed and spoken word. And everyone said in Jesus' name. Put your Bibles down for a moment and stretch out your hands to the Lord if you can. If you can, reach your hands to the Lord. He would that everyone would do this. Men would lift up holy hands. And just praise Him for all the things that He has done for you. Praise Him. Before you even hear the word today, thank Him for the word. I thank you for this word. You're the best thing, Lord. Amen.
Amen. Thank you for standing and please be seated. Thank you. So glad to see mom and dad here today. Happy that you're here. I woke up this morning praying and thinking about so many people, um, not the least of which was Jenny Scott. So I'm praying for you, Sister Jenny, and so very proud of your kingdom effort in Guam. Thank you, Sister Jenny. It may have very well been taught to me in my childhood and youth. Mother could have testified to it. But I found it to be more concentrated when I moved to our city. We bought a house December the 9th, 1999 in Edgewood Grove. We peeled old wallpaper And with the help of Jack Simmons, we put in a new restroom upstairs and Mark Quick was on scaffolding. And in those wintry months, Sister Allen moved in with us and lived with us for a number of months and she tore up the old carpet on the steps. After her husband had passed away, she moved with us. We planted shrubs and some rose bushes and then I was given the task of keeping them. Tammy has multiple different thumbs. None of them are green. (laughs) Our first five years were spent basing out of Ohio after we were married. We lived outside of Columbus in a suburb called Reynoldsburg. And due to our travel, we were in and out of our townhouse there. There there were weeks that we were gone. At one point, we didn't come back for three months. As Brother Tinney commissioned us to take a small church in Louisiana and help them for that time. Our entrance into the townhouse was mostly bare until Tammy decided to put a few flowers in the empty two-foot by ten-foot flower bed area. But of course, we were gone. A day in, a week out. A few days at home and a month on the road traveling. I remember the day that Tammy planted those flowers. But of course, you must bear in mind, the summer sun makes certain demands of the kinds of colorful flowers that appeal to our sensibilities. We were not there to water them. So Tammy planted plastic flowers. Artificial. No watering needed and they kept their color all year round. But on Hudson here in our city, the shrubs were real and the roses grew long. They were beautiful and fragrant. But at times, at pivotal times, as I came to remember, they needed to be cut back, pruned. The life of them actually depended on it. All the beauty brought from that stem held for a season. The next entailed much less length. The life of it all was contingent upon its reduction. It almost seems counterintuitive, especially when I was younger. 
But I knew enough, not much, but enough, that if the next season meant more growth, sustainability, even increase, it meant that such a reduction had to occur. I'll stand here today and confess an easy truth. I've never had a pruning like the cutting words from an elder or a friend. And to that end, I've never grown more in the following season than I did when I was reduced in the time before. To think that growth and the undermining and underpining of life comes from the periodic removal of what was once producing the color of our lives is almost too profound for me to fathom. Watch him now in the Bible. He's straightforward in both word and conduct. He's the aging prophet Elijah, and he is about to call his successor to fill his seat. Elijah will mince no words. He's clearly caustic. There's no warm-up to the call. His gait is sure and true as he approaches a working Elisha. The well-to-do farmer levies his eyes on the task at hand. His massive team of oxen are equipped to plow all harnessed with bonded leather. When Elijah enters the scene, and there the elder puts his mantle on the younger, the Hebrew reader will sit up at this point. Their attention is piqued, but we often struggle with it. To be covered for a moment by a used garment doesn't strike our discriminating minds. But to the Jews, they knew what it meant. It was the call. The mantle was the embodiment of the anointed one. The garment was the personhood of the man. It was unique, powerful, and appointed. Like the garment of Joseph, it was evidence of his presence. Like the garment of Esau, pressed against the weakened hands of Isaac, it was the affirmation of his identity. Elijah laid his mantle on the shoulders of Elisha, and that was enough. Maybe not for you. Maybe not for the casual reader who races through this God-breathed, God-inspired words of life in order to run back to something less, always less. Elijah laid his integrity, his calling, and his commission on the shoulders in the life of Elisha. And Elisha knew it. He he knew what it meant. He, He knew that this was the moment of all moments, maybe once in a lifetime. Perhaps it was the hopes of all who learned the Torah. All the young men imagined to sit in that seat. And it happened to Elisha. Elijah had pulled back the chair and offered it to the younger. But the younger said... Let me go home and kiss my family goodbye. To which the older prophet replied, After what I just did to you, after what you just felt, you would risk the mantle for a time of reflection. Elijah cut deep. There are no softening blows. The younger was given no leniency for his good intentions. It was and it shall always be everything or nothing at all. And the scripture leaves it bare. There are no fillers, no kind words of invitation. Elijah doesn't sympathize with the younger. He has no pleasantries to offer. Elijah is keeping score. Take it or leave it. It's win or go home. It's a trophy for first place or nothing but the field and the oxen and the routine of living. There are no participation trophies at the end of that exchange. And whatever color that existed in the younger was immediately cut back. But the future will reveal the power of God manifested through the unmatched prophetic ministry of Elisha because he allowed himself to be pruned. 
And I submit to you that every time we read of Elisha's deeds, his display of faith and power and miracles, that it was the accepted cutbacks in the prior season that afforded him those results. I'll bring us a little closer to home, at least in one dispensation. Years ago, some of the articles that were written were known as yellow magazine stories. I'll confine this to the famous Fleet Street editors of years gone by. Many of them were brash in their approach to faculty administration. The late Charles Wintour, his memos reveal as much. Wintour occupied the role of the editor of the London Evening Standard. I read one of his retorts to a young apprentice. His response to his younger and young reporter who was asking for an assignment to Israel in the mid-1960s. The young reporter asked to go. He wanted to go. He wanted to go to report on the conflicts that were occurring even in that moment. Wintour wrote back in his memo and I quote, You are the fifth and least qualified person who has asked today to go to the Middle East. I will bear in mind, he said, your request for an exciting assignment. But they do not grow on trees to be plucked by the hungry young mouths. Upon reading those blunt words so foreign to our postmodern cautious approach, I feel like an archaeologist stumbling over an ancient artifact which revealed the odd ways people once dealt and communicating with one another. That withering memo is an unwelcome advancement in our world today. There is no footing for straight talk. People either feel bullied or humiliated. Being told that you are wrong is simply not in style. The Bible says that a day would come when every person would feel right in their own eyes. And we are at that moment even now. This is the pivot of the sinful path. People have become so guarded of their image that they would rather hear praise that ruins them than correction that saves them. While the responses vary, the overall attitude prevails. No one wants to be addressed in a way that cuts their self-esteem. Pruning is not very cachet. In a world that took down scoreboards to say the feelings of all the children so that no one was ever second place. In a world where self-expression is more cherished than adherence to a holy life, we are not very fond of being reduced. Being a better man or a better woman will not be tolerated today if it comes at the cost of correction. But Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27 and 6, Faithful are the the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. He wrote, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Of course, the proverb sounds a little edgy if you ask me. There's a host of people who, who don't lean on them as much as the Beatitudes. But just so none here today feel compelled to swipe Solomon's sound bites away, I'll read the expanded script from the book of Hebrews, and perhaps all of us should buckle up. Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? 
If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. (laughs) How are we doing today? Wouldn't it have been nice if it had iced over this morning? (laughs) Charles Wintour would have been brought up on intimidating charge, intimidation charges had he been the editor of any paper today. And those yellow magazine moments would have been washed pale had Wintour cut down the innocent request of a thrill-seeking young person, he would have been shamed into retirement. We've already seen it already in this last year. No, Charles Wintour could not exist in our world today, no more than those most aged middle school band directors. Some of those directors now contend with the dismantling of numbered chairs. See, when I was in band, In fifth grade, they had first chair, second chair, third chair, instrumentalist. But in some schools today, that numbering system has been seen as harmful. How about Daniel standing before King David? Can you handle the clippers? David is about to find out. Nathan enters that courtroom and the palace stands at attention. It must have made David proud to host the prophet in his house. And then comes Nathan. He comes with a story. It's a setup for rebuke. But David is so engrossed with his own power that he cannot see himself in the story. So Nathan says, King David, a very wealthy man with thousands of sheep, has stolen the one sheep from a poor man. And King David, the wealthy man, then killed the man from whom he stole the one sheep. What should happen to him? David, like so many, thinks he's hidden behind his well-laid plot. So he leans on his scepter and burrows his brow in disgust. And he says, and I quote, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Here's the next line. The knife is being unsheathed from Nathan, from Nathan's side. And the prophet says, Thou art the man. David will go on to rule a powerful kingdom. He'll establish worship, sacrifice, and offerings in the kingdom like no one before him or after him. He will develop plans and gather money to build the temple. He'll buy the threshing floor from Aruna where the temple will one day find its foundation. He will overthrow wicked empires and be called a man after God's own heart. But all of it will rest upon his acceptance to be cut back and pruned. The next season is contingent upon the present. It all looks good today, but tomorrow there is certain death. Today is colorful, bounty, fragrance, but without the reduction, those old and lengthy branches will choke out the future. I hope you can hear me now. Mordecai actually told his niece, whom he raised like his own daughter, that she could be replaced. Can you imagine? When she sent word that he was a little too loud and his sackcloth and ashes were unbecoming to him and to her, Mordecai sent word back and said, Tell Esther, you were brought to the palace 
for such a time as this. But if you're unwilling to speak and stand up for people, your people, if you hold your peace at this time, if you hold it all together, then, then there should be an enlargement, deliverance arise from some other place. You're not the end to end all. You're not the one who monopolizes anything. God can use anybody, he said. Those words, so biting and filled with truth, became the agents of salvation for an entire nation. And I dare say that there are many parents who wouldn't even think about being so clear and chilling to their own children, even if it meant that they would die in their place, never having achieved the God call on their lives. I'm asking you today. And I know that it might be difficult to wrap your mind around my next statement. But it really is not me. It's the Holy Spirit that's asking you today. Can you be reduced for the sake of the coming season? Can you be corrected, redirected, and engaged on terms not your own? Are you willing to give room to denial by another? Of the cacophony of voices that attend to your day. Is there even one voice which you welcome, though it prunes you and cuts you back into obscurity? It's not the American way. The American way is to be seen, to be known, to up front, to be center. Even many prideful people say, I'd just like to stay in the background. That's still pride too, because you won't go forward. You'll just pretend to be humble. I wonder why people see Jesus in such limited light. When Peter told Jesus, you don't have to die, Lord. Be it far from thee. Jesus turned to Peter, rebuked him. In fact, when Jesus showed them how he must suffer and die in Jerusalem, be killed, the Bible says, and then rise again, to which Peter said, be it far from thee, Lord. Jesus turned to Peter and said to Peter, and I quote from Matthew 16, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, thou don't even savor the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I wonder how many in this house could handle such words from your leader. Or would you suddenly feel the Lord, quote unquote, leading you to another place of worship? God's just leading us somewhere else. That's a lie. He didn't lead you anywhere else. You wouldn't be pruned. That moment wasn't lost on Peter. Oh no, it grew. And he grew by it. It made him a better man. It made him savor the pruding shears because they cost him something and they caused the most explosive ministry in his life. Peter learned a life lesson not soon forgotten and it manifested itself years after Pentecost when a reformed and converted witch doctor named Simon wanted the power to lay hands on people. Simon, the reformed sorcerer, asked Peter and John, Give me also this power, then whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But verse 20 of Acts 8, Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of thy wickedness, and pray, God, or perhaps maybe the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The shears came out to cut him back. And now he's at the pivot point of his life. And this is the place where he is going to grow and live and expand. When Simon the sorcerer answers, pray. Pray for me. That none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. I'm sorry. All of it pruning, cutting back the reduction of Simon's life by the words of Peter became his salvation. Simon didn't get bitter, he got better. He didn't get offended, he got mended. He wasn't put off, he was set right. 
but not all survived the rebuke of Jesus. A prostitute's pose became the undoing of the one Judas Iscariot. So many men in one room eating when she burst through the door. They're all watching her. They're aghast at what she's doing. She pulls from her cloak the prized possession of her life, the precious ointment, so expensive and valuable. People would clamor to find it. Judas watches with contempt how she pours out a year's worth salary on the body, the head of Jesus Christ, perhaps most of it spilling on the floor. The parched earth sucks it up. Judas speaks from his heart when he valued money over the body. Such is the case with carnal people who care for funds more than the ministry. They are instinctively critical of money matters in the church, always lifting practicality over purpose. Judas says, this precious ointment could have been used more efficiently. Judas leans against a single motive to make his stand. When the Lord openly rebukes him and the Lord says, leave her alone. She values me more than your ministry. He's standing before shears, but he rejects them. Judas will have no part of it. And the next scene of his life is a plot of betrayal because those that reject the reduction no longer produce the pleasant color. It's always betrayal. I'm almost at the end of this life lyric that has saved my own heart so many times. Think of it. The Lord has fed 5,000 men, not including women of children. It could very well have been fifteen or 20,000 people. We've been there, standing atop a small boat. If you could look from where I'm looking to my left is a green pasture. The Franciscans have built a monument there, a small church. Some belief that perhaps this is the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. But that area is well watered. It's very nice. It's plush. No. No, our guide, Hezi, who is now a little over 80 years old, he points to another direction. He says, this is the wilderness place. Look over there. And sure enough, the long and bent hill cascading downward. There are no plants It's barren and mostly rocky. Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. The miracle is so profound that the people cannot get enough of Jesus. Man, what a day. John chapter 6 tells us that many of them sought for him after the miracle. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus perceived, John 6, that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. So the Lord left them. He went to a mountain the next day. I'm sorry, in that evening he walked on the water and got into the boat with the disciples, went to the other side. The next day, we find the Lord with his disciples. When many other disciples and people came to him, they even asked him, Lord, how would you get from one side to the other? Here he comes. The loving Savior, who is always pictured holding sheep and caressing children, opens his mouth to speak. Yes, he is a shepherd, meek and lowly in spirit. Yes, he is kind, but he's also the Savior. Jesus said, you seek me, not because of the miracle, but because you're a fool. I satisfy you. Jesus said, so don't work for things that are temporary. Don't spend your life filling your natural bodies 
Work for food that leads you to eternal life. Can anyone hear this today? Work for food that leads to eternal life. There's never going to be enough money for you to be satisfied. There are never going to be enough new cars for you to ever lose the thirst. There are never going to be enough clothes that will make you feel good about yourself. There are never enough vacations that make you feel well rested. You'll never come home feeling better. And it'll be the end of it. There are never enough relationships or new friendships or new ideas or new thoughts to gain. And the bread that you're eating might fill you for a moment, but it always fades away. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, you would ask him that he would give you water that you would never thirst again. Because the bread and the drink that he gives you is satisfying for all junctures of life, no matter where you are. And Jesus is saying to all those disciples and to those people, you ought not be looking for something that fills your natural body, but you should work for food that leads you to eternal life. And they ask him in verse 28, well, what shall we do? What might work the works of God? What, how can we do this? Jesus said, well, first you believe in him that sent you. But they are oblivious to his word, so they ask him for a sign Give me a sign. And they followed up by saying, you know, Jesus, our forefathers, they ate manna in the desert. That was bread from heaven, convenient and all, fresh every morning, laying out there with all those nutrients. You could cook it, you could bake it, you could fry it, you could boil it. (laughs) Then Jesus reveals that he is the bread and they have to eat his body. He begins the conversation of death, dying, sacrifice, and loss. He says... He tells them they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood and it cuts them to the core. I quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in him. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life and I will raise him at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread he's pointing to himself which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead he that eateth of this bread he shall live forever and here is their response many therefore of his disciples when they heard this they said it's hard this is a hard saying who could even who can hear it who can grasp it who wants it and jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it and he said does this offend you culmination of all those words those cutting words he did not promote self-gain or self-ambition he didn't even promote individual ministries he promoted himself he said you gotta get in me and i gotta get in you and if i get in you it's gonna be at the cost of loss and sacrifice and pain and flesh and blood and my way is going to be a struggling way and my road is a narrow road and my gate is convicting and constricting and I'm going to cut you back and I'm going to bring you into life but when you get my bread and you get my drink you're never going to be hungry and you're never going to be thirsty I'll tell you what it means for you and me 
when you get the real Jesus inside of you, you won't care about what other people think. You won't be clamoring every day for more gain and more stuff. You won't be trying every day to get ahead a little bit longer. You won't really care what people think because he's in you. Let me just tell you what it means. It means when you go through struggle and when you lose a loved one and you have struggle and loss, you'll never forsake him because you are drinking his blood and eating his flesh. And when you get up in the night and pray and when you get to church and you don't feel like it and you worship when you're tired, that means it's a sacrifice of praise. John 6, 66. It sounds like the mark of the beast. I'll tell you how to be identified with the beast. Can you put John 666 up there? I'm not sure, but I think it's the only time the scripture when we get 666, I would have just skipped over it. Have you ever been to those hotels? You go one, two, you're up three, four, four, fifth, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fourteen. Just me? Builders all over the world are superstitious about 13. When you get to 14, you're probably on 13. If you feel good about 14, don't feel good about it. Make sure that the one below you is not 12. Tons of black cats, shadows, all the mirrors are broken, ladders are everywhere. Uh-huh. I'll tell you the mark of the beast. I'll tell you what the beast intentions for you. I'll tell you what the devil's designed for you. It's for you to reject the pruning and the shearing of the Lord. So that from that time forward, they left. Oh no, pastor, you ain't talking to me like that. You ain't treating me like that. You know who I am? I'm qualified. Really? No, 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 Pastor, you're not going to address me. Oh, no, you're not going to walk by me. I need a recognition. I, 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 I need to be known. In fact, I have qualified myself. I've paid my dues. Hold on, Pastor. You don't recognize God inside of me? You don't recognize what I've done? No, I'll tell you what, Pastor. See, all this is a waste of money. What we should have done is we should have, we should have just disbanded all this mess. Why spend millions of dollars on this building? We could have had 50 small churches and we could all just gone to a little house somewhere. We could all give it our money to the poor. I'll tell you what we could have done. We could have collected all this money that we put into this building. Why do we need this pulpit and this, all this stuff? Why do we need all these lights? What is all that for? I'll tell you, I have a problem with the, how the money's being spent, Pastor. Oh, you're not the first. Don't worry about it. You're not the first. In fact, even in my lifetime, I've seen you before. See, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the pew. And while there are many names, there are only so many people. I'll tell you what we'll do. We don't like sacrifice. So as soon as that building program starts, I'll tell you what, we're going to feel our call. To Florida. It's a growing economy. There's a lot of lost people. 
I'd love to participate in the building program, but you know, we have a lot of personal needs. I'd like to come to prayer, maybe Bible study on Wednesday night, but you know, we have things to do Wednesday night. We just, it's difficult to get out. And they left him because it was a hard saying. I know where you are. Usually when people don't like me, they don't look at me. (laughs) Oh, this is so uncomfortable. Not for me. I got jet lag, man. I don't even really know. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that God didn't put you in this place? He gathered you by his own will and spirit so that you could be right here today, right now, in this moment. He is so careful what he does. Not one day has ever passed in your life before it didn't enter his eyes. He called you out of darkness into this marvelous light and set you with a little Italian preacher. Maybe you don't even think I'm qualified, but God must have thought I am. And when the day comes when he wants a new manager to manage this area, he'll just pick me up and move me out or send me somewhere else or take me into glory. But while I'm here and while you're here, come on, let's get together. We got to get pruned back a little bit. I see a harvest on the other side. I see colors coming on the other side. I see fragrance on the other side. But you might be in the season where you got to be trimmed back. I see a bountiful blessing. I see a restoration. I see a multiplication. But it cannot come unless I lend myself. To the pruning of the master. Come stand with now. Come stand. Come stand. I'll confess that I listened to Paul Harvey (laughs) a time or two. He was known for his hesitation. And of course, the end of the story. I've sat in too many services and heard sermons where the pastor never, the preacher never concluded, what happened to that guy? What happened to those people? And I would go to them and say, what happened to them? And I was distraught when they would say, well, I don't know. And I would say, well, you can't tell me half of a story. You've got to do the research. Tell me where they go. That young reporter who felt the shearer of Charles Wintour, it is said that he went on to become a prolific writer, that he valued his position more than ever, that he became a cautious man who was self-proclaimed sustained by the withering memo. It was the turning point of his life. It was also said that the memo became the catalyst of his future efficiency and his success, that he was saved by a memo of rebuke. And I ask you today, I know that it might be difficult. Can you be reduced 
for the sake of the coming season. Are you a wise son that embraces the word that I have given to you today? Oh, oh, I lament that it went so fast. Like a song sang but once. But I pray today, shake me and break me and mold me and remake me in your image, Lord. Cut away all the carnality of my life, my self-ambition, the person I think I am, my individualistic spirit, I pray, cut it away. So that I may know him, Lord, I pray. I've got to decrease. There's no room for you as long as I'm here. I say to everyone in this house, are you willing to give room to denial? Are you willing to lend yourself to the absence of pride? Can anyone ever say to you, you don't even savor the things of God? Can anyone ever point their finger in you and say, you're the man? And you fall on your knees and say, forgive me. Can anyone ever say to you, pray that the things you said won't come to pass? That I won't be full of gall and bitterness? Or are we a people so engrossed with our own image and our own mindset that no one can speak We are never cut back. I tell you, in time, in the next season, there'll be no harvest in your life. And you'll fumble around with the long growing branches that are dead. They'll choke out every good thing that could have been. So I offer this today, but not from me, but by the Holy Spirit of promise, I offer it. You lend your body and your mind, your tongue and your heart, every thought in your life. Lord, do with me what you will. I am your humble servant before you, Lord. I want to eat your flesh. I want to drink your blood. I've got to have you inside of me. I'm hungering after you. Not a position or a place, Lord. Ah. Ah. Uh, right now, wherever you are, if you so feel led to respond to this, where you're standing or in this altar, come and offer your body and your life. Come and offer everything, your successes and your failures to God and say, Lord, I'm offering myself now to you, Jesus. I'm offering myself to you now, Jesus. Come on, I'm feeling like I'm preaching to someone one step away from eternity. You may be a couple of steps away from eternity right now. I'm preaching the word of God to my life and to yours. Uh, uh, centered on you Lord focused on you Lord my heart is fixed on you God your purpose your kingdom your mission your call I won't turn around. I'm not going to go back from that. I'm, even today, whatever day I, whatever way I woke up on this very day, I'm not going back to that same way.